Hey folks, welcome back to the Track and Field Performance Podcast. This is episode 38. Today my guest was Coach Ryan Banta of Parkway Central High School in Missouri. Ryan is the head women's track and field coach there, but he's also a author um, of well-known sprints coaching and training book, The Sprinter's Compendium, which compiles several of the best track and field coaches in the world um, talking about speed training. So it's a very um, comprehensive resource that many of you would be familiar with. So we talked about how that book came to be, how he assembled the list of coaches that he did, and what he wanted to achieve by essentially creating that. We also talked about his educational background. Uh, Ryan has a master's degree in positive psychology, and so I was very interested to know a little bit about how he implements that in his work with the kids, both inside the classroom and outside the classroom in the coaching practice. He has a training philosophy that he coins the critical mass system. So we talked about what those components compile of and essentially um, how he's created that over time through trial and error and what he believes um, it should look like in the beginning of the year when he's preparing the athletes for essentially comp season, but then also how he navigates things within comp season. I found that to be very rich in information and I think you will enjoy it too. Ryan is obviously teacher as well as a coach, so I think one thing you'll notice is that his delivery is excellent, and that is because he's challenged every day to do so, you know, with a multitude of different people. And so I think on this episode, you'll see a lot of information on the programming and the training side, but you'll also see a lot on the coaching end too. So I'm excited for everyone to listen to this and really take something home. On the sponsorship front, I have to thank Output Sports for their continued support. Output Sports create a wearable device that pairs with an application on your phone and you can use this for several modalities of training whether it be plyometric training to assess ground contact times whether it is in the weight room and you want to assess your peak power or your bar velocity it can really increase the intent of what you do in training and that's what I found it most useful for is almost creating a competition like scenario with each rep and, and allowing me to get more out of myself and also tracking data for the purpose of progression fatigue etc so if you want to head on over to outputsports.com there you can request a demo for the device or if you're interested in purchasing a device you can use the promo code columnburk 10 at the checkout for 10 percent off on with the episode of ryan banta i hope you enjoy it Coach Ryan Banta, this one has been a long time coming, and I'm happy to have you with me this evening in Ireland and in the afternoon in the U.S. Uh, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me on. And yeah, it's been it's been a long time coming, so I'm looking forward to the conversation and discussion, and hopefully we can bring the audience something of value as we go through. Yeah, it's not often that I get to go into the world of high school coaching, and particularly you are someone who's obviously accrued a lot of accomplishments in that realm, but starting off with something that you're maybe well maybe more known for than actual coaches is being an author and someone who's assembled a very popular book in the the sprinters compendium and i'd really like to know about where did that idea of getting all of these great coaches to contribute to a a mass kind of assembly of knowledge come from well the biggest thing there is to be honest um that i felt like there was a gap so there are a lot of books on weight training, endurance training, swimming, 
even cycling. I mean, there's just uh, unbelievable volume of information out there for people. And I realized a while ago that there really wasn't um, anything. I mean, there's there's a lot of books out there on sprinting, but the the value and the quality and the level of those books are not awesome. And um, and no disrespect to anybody uh, out there, but it just was one of those things where it's like, here's a very rudimentary book with some training that I stole from, you know, whether it's the IAAF back in the day training, or if it's the USATF books or, or their training, their level one, level two, or level three. And I felt like also all of us coaches have kind of a different needs and different things like that. And, and so I was in uh, the Olympic training center in 2012. I was a participant in a program that the USATF runs called the Emerging Elite Training uh, Training Coaches Clinic, if you will. And we're sitting in the cafeteria, you know, uh, eating and, and talking with the fellow coaches that are there on a variety of different levels, some college coaches, high school coaches, and club coaches. And we're talking about different things and relevant things to our sport and frustrations and, and challenges. And somebody brings up an article that I wrote. They didn't know that they were speaking to the guy who wrote the article, like, oh yeah, I read this <laughs> article by this guy, and and I'm looking down at my name tag, and I'm like, is this really happening right now? Am I am I living in a simulation? And so of course I told him, like, well, that was my article. I wrote that article, so I absolutely agree with you, and and I'm glad that uh, it meant something to you that it really has informed your opinions. So I went back to my wife, and I'm like, honey, and she was, uh, you know, just my wife for a couple of years at that point. I said, babe, I said. I think there's an opportunity here. I said, people are reading my stuff that I've been putting on the internet. And I, and then it was kind of scary too, because I realized I didn't think anybody was paying attention. So I didn't worry about grammar or spelling or sentence structure. And I'm talking to sprint coaches and usually sprint coaches are much more forgiving than distance coaches about where you have an aspersand or a, a comma and all this kind of stuff. But when I realized, oh God, people are actually listening and being influenced by this stuff, well, then I better step up my game. While I was on that website, um, elitetrack.com with Mike Young, who uh, is still a, mm -hmm. a very mm -hmm. uh, quality practitioner of speed and strength in America. Um, the other thing we created was what was called a wooden project. And so it was based off the work of a basketball coach, John Wooden, mm -hmm. very famous in the United States. And he would do a survey list of questions about different topics related to his sport and he would ask you know okay let's talk about free throws my team was not very good at free throws i want to learn from the best in america and what he would do is he would send out this questionnaire out to the 10 coaches he respected the most in that particular aspect of the sport and because he was john wooden and he was already a hall of fame basketball player and on his way to becoming a hall of fame basketball coach many people were willing to participate in this survey and here was the cool catch of it if you answer these questions i will also answer these questions of what i do and then all of the other coaches will and we will share all of that information that we accrue from each other um and you should be able to become a better basketball player or a better basketball coach and sure enough uh, that's what they did. And it was very successful. And we of course know that coach Wooden had numerous national titles in a row and just dominated the world of basketball for a really long time at the collegiate level. 
And so for track and field, I was like, that'd be kind of cool. And so I was doing that simultaneously while I was writing articles on elite track. And then that tipping point was being at the Olympic Training Center in 2012 and realizing people were actually reading stuff. So then I was like, well, okay, then there is an opportunity here. I think I can make a book. And you know how this is. People have these grand ideas and uh, how they're going to do stuff. And you never really know what it's going to be. And you're taking a lot of risk. And not like for me financially, but it was a risk, you know, socially. I'm going to reach out to coaches who don't really know me that much. Um, I'm going to risk a lot of time. So like I would write every night after, you know, my wife would go to bed or my kids eventually, because that's how long it took to get the book done. You know, my book eventually got released right after my second daughter was born. And you're, you're taking a lot of time doing that. So that's a risk. And of course, you have doubters and, and people like that. One of my relatives is like, well, you know, Ryan, it's okay, you know, as long as you get the book done, and if it doesn't sell, or, you know, at least you accomplish something. And I'm like, no, no, no. I know that there's a huge gap in this situation. As long as someone doesn't beat me to it, um, it's going to be a unique um, resource that's never really been produced. And thankfully, eventually over 50 coaches joined me in this project and contributed to it. And it is the largest and most exhaustive resource on linear speed, uh, specifically sprinting in track and field ever created. Now, is it perfect? Absolutely not. Is there uh, grammar errors throughout the book? Yes, there is. However, to your audience, I have gone back through and tried to clean up some of the grammar. And for the international audience, um, I'm going to re-release the book in chapters. And uh, it's going to be probably produced by Amazon. That way, the people um, around the world have an opportunity to get this book because it's so big and so heavy that it costs about $65 to ship it overseas on top of the already expensive costs. Well, that immediately removes a lot of people around the world from the book, which is absolutely not what I wanted. I want that knowledge to be out there because I want people to get the most that they can out of themselves and out of their coaching and out of their athletes and out of the sport. Um, because one of the original reasons why I created the book was to provide value for the world and not, hey, this is the one way to do it. Mm -hmm. Here are the many ways to of do it. Of course. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's great. And it's funny you mentioned uh, the pricing of international shipping. Many years ago when I was actually noticing the book being released and I was living in Ireland at the time, I didn't buy it for that very reason. So it is great <laughs> to hear that you are taking care of that now. Um, although I know actually a good friend of mine who's a sprinter was was stubbornly um, persistent and did get it over to Ireland. And he actually has it in his bookshelf, saw it last week. So um, it has it has several copies over in Ireland, no doubt. But it's interesting. You've got 50 authors, you know, contributing to the book. And I am interested to know, you obviously had some names that sprung off the top of your mind from influences and so forth. But was there kind of a core philosophy? You've, you've mentioned that you wanted a variety. So in, in your mind at that time, like, was there things that you felt like needed to get touched on in terms of, you know, philosophies that would allow kind of certain common denominators to be drawn about how to get better at sprint training, but then also see the nuances as well. Like just even selecting authors, I'd love to know what your kind of thought process was on that. Well, so I asked everybody, 
Uh, okay. Just so we're clear that yeah. I, that I knew and that I had a relationship with, and that I mean, I even reached out to coaches where English isn't their first or second language. Um, so we had a, a gentleman, uh, Roberto Bomini, who was an uh, Italian sprint coach, who was uh, Yvette Lavova's uh, coach, yep. and uh, and so he uh, he wrote, and then I had a friend that spoke Italian, and so we did our best that we could to translate what he gave us. And so I asked everybody. Now, there are some coaches. So if you notice names absent from the book, trust that they were asked and they said no. Um, and that's fine. You know, it's okay. But I was looking for, you know, people who I believed were quality practitioners for like a long period of time mm -hmm. in their space. You know, mm -hmm. somebody who's got a proven track record, literally, you know, throughout a long period of time so that I can see that. For me, I wanted to see someone who could reproduce that success over and over and over again. Yeah. And obviously the big fish that I caught right out of the gate was, was Dan Path. And so Dan, I mean, is a, a just a real nice guy and, and, a, and a really a quality gentleman. And he has his own lexicon and language. You have to speak path, pathith, you know, it's like a, it's a whole different language, you know? But he's, he was the sweetest guy and he was awesome. And he had done it at the collegiate level, at the international level. He's won, you know, numerous Olympic gold medalists and world record holders. And he coached a lot of different things. And so for me, that was the one person that I really desperately wanted to know more from. And then the other was, was Vince Anderson. And once I got those two gentlemen on board who, again, long track record of collegiate and international Olympic and world record holders and medalists. Then everybody else was like, well, I guess this is legit. If Dan's doing it, if Vince is doing it, well, then maybe I should do it too. <clears throat> and some coaches are scarcity mindset, right? They don't truly believe that even if they give you the recipe, they don't truly believe they might be able to outcoach you. They believe they've got the secrets and thus, they want to keep the secrets so that they have this inherent advantage. And then there's other coaches that are like abundance mindset or that in the sport of track and field, everybody can get better, you know? And so we want to make everybody better. Um, and thankfully I would say pretty much everybody who participated at least at that time was of an abundance mindset. Mm -hmm. And then of course there's Tony Holler, who I know you've spoken to as well. And Tony was just radically different in his thinking. And so looking at how to put this together, the idea of Dan's technicalities and the details and the science-based approach. And then Vince Anderson with the approach of how to do this over a long period of time in college with large groups and how to simplify some of that stuff. And then with Tony, it was this radical, let's look at this from a very different angle and almost shake up that situation and drag people the other way in such an extreme um, that makes you question, well, am I really always doing the right thing? And so those three coaches were, for me, the most um, important in shaping new ideas for me. A lot of the other coaches and stuff were either coaches I was already influenced by or respected, but those three were three that I felt like would I really would benefit from, and I did. And uh, my coaching is much, much better now 
um, than it was when I first started writing the book. And I know we'll spend a good bit of this conversation talking about how those three did influence your coaching and how that looks now, especially because you're a few years removed and probably have tried several things uh, from each of those and, and found what works for your setup and in your situation, your athletes. But there's another unique piece there about yourself that I think is important to touch on. And I think it's one, one that's a prevalent topic in today's world, which is performance sports psychology. You went back to school in 2019, if I'm not mistaken, to go and study positive psychology in the University of Missouri, correct? That is correct. Absolutely. I'd love to know, number one, why positive psychology? And then two, how has it affected your coaching? Because I think that this is something that, again, is becoming more and more important. And I think among the age group that you work in, too, it could be a game changer, really, if you're really intentional about what you're doing. Yeah. So I had a young lady who was very talented and would just crush workouts and do extremely well in practice and actually ran really well and raced really well until we would get to our championship season. And then when we got to our championship season, year in and year out, she just would fail over and over and over again, fail to meet her expectations, fail to perform at a high level and just allowed whatever she perceived as pressure to just make her pop and we got to a point where finally she had put in such good workouts and such good training and and had raced pretty well outside of the championship season that she still was able to walk on at um you know a division one school in america and she didn't think that was a possibility. And so when she sat down with the coach at Butler University over in Indianapolis that has actually a pretty decent distance program, mm-hmm. especially for the conference that they're in. Um, and he goes, yeah, we absolutely think that you can, uh, you know, run here. And she's like, wait, you're telling me I could be a division one runner? Yeah. You know, yes, we believe that that's possible. And it was that coach had flipped that belief in this athlete so strongly that she raced from there on out PR, 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 the whole year and was dominant. It was a completely different human being. And then we got to districts and thankfully um, it had changed. She had gotten mentally stronger and um, more confident, let's say, and she got through districts, no problem. And so I'm like, all right, you know, we finally slayed the dragon she finally believes in herself. You know, this is, this is great. And she's going to be in a great place. And we get to districts and in her key race, which was the 1600, which we kind of run like closer to the metric mile. Um, then I don't know why we do the 1500. That's a whole nother subject, but anyway, <laughs> um, it drives me nuts, but she was in this race and there's like, you know, uh, not that many people in it because you have to qualify to get to it. And we get to about 600 meters left in the race and she drops all the way to the back. And I'm thinking, here we go again. You know, we're going to have this mental blow up. What the heck is going on? And I'm so frustrated and I'm not mad at her. I'm frustrated that I did not have the ability to shape it for the child to help them. I didn't have the tools. I didn't have the methods. And this is not a one and done thing. This is something you have to thread through an athlete's entire career. And I'm standing right next to her father because I thought, ah, you know, this time there's no way she's not going to make it. And so I'm like ready to kick the fence and cuss and scream. I'm so pissed. I'm pissed at myself. I'm pissed at the situation. 
And all of a sudden, she steps out to like lane three, looks left, looks right, and just shakes her head like this to say no, and then just drops the hammer and puts on the biggest surge I had ever seen her do with about 550 meters left in the race. Basically to say, if I'm going to go out, I'm going to go out with a bang and not a whimper. I'm going to set the terms of this arrangement. And she goes out there and blows the doors off of all of the girls. And I mean, it was such an aggressive move that I knew it was probably dangerous. But I knew better than to say anything because I'm like, for once in her life, she's taking ownership of this situation Mm -hmm. aggressively. Let's see how it plays out. Well, sure enough, as she gets to the last you know, 100 meters, you know, her dad and I know she absolutely is going to qualify. She had, you know, gotten far enough ahead of almost everybody. He and I are crying. We're hugging each other with tears of joy. And she runs a massive personal record and qualifies for our state's championship. When she walked off the track that weekend, um, I pulled her aside and I said, listen, I have decided I am never, ever going to let another athlete suffer with a coach who doesn't have the skills to help someone like you. I'm going to go back to the university. I'm going to stop doing my master's in human performance, and I'm going to go get a master's in positive psychology because Mm. I need to be better for people like you so that you don't have to rely on some college coach to help you, and you don't have to rely on your own self alone as a high schooler and adolescent to have to do this alone. Well, that's not the end of the story, okay? The end of the story is she goes to college, has a great running career. Um, About halfway through her college experience, she says, Mr. Banta, Coach Banta, I wanted to let you know that I've made some decisions on what I want my degree to be in. And I'm like, well, what's that? And she said, I've decided to get my degree in fertility medicine. Now, what I hadn't told you is that my wife can't get pregnant the old-fashioned way. Mm Mm-hmm. And so she, you know, was honoring my family to help my wife and me and couples like us to have children eventually just like her. And I get emotional every time I talk about it because it's such a, just a a beautiful, you know, ultimate unending feedback loop of positivity. And that was the reason why I decided to get into positive psychology was for that. I didn't have another girl or guy like Kara who had to suffer it alone without a coach. And thank God I did it when I did it. Um, In fact, I finished my degree in 2019 and you know, it happened right before COVID. And if there was ever a time to have some skills and positive mindset and resilience and all of that, I mean, we need it more now than ever. Kids are in a very, very different place um, than they used to be. We can talk more about that. Yeah, I mean, that that story actually is very, very moving, I have to say, and I was listening to hear that. And you you told it so well, too. It's it's as if you were back in the event right, right there and then. But yes, I think with the cohort that you're working with and, you know, the, I guess a lot of practitioners have talked about being strategic in your communication I, I always think about you know the the book conscious coaching which i'm sure you've read um and that is being again more intentional with how you approach people because they're all different and they have their unique set of personality traits 
their life experiences, which may have played into, you know, just why she didn't have that baseline um, confidence the way that, you know, other athletes you've worked with did have. And so there was no need for a serious intervention of sorts, but it's about equipping yourself with the skills for anybody and everybody so that, again, you can be dynamic and not let things run along for such a long time without, you know, being able to prescribe something that will be beneficial. So I guess from your key learnings in that master's degree, like how do you feel like those are, are applying to your everyday situations within coaching or what do you think have been the most beneficial aspects? So big things is how to deal with an injured athlete. Okay. How to deal with an athlete that is probably going to need a long period of time of recovery. So it's the idea of following up with them every day, following up with the trainer every day. These things seem obvious, but they're not actually having the kids out at practice, figuring out a way to create a workout that looks a lot like what they're doing, keeping them as a part of the team and all of the team events and all the team organization giving them a circle of people that they can work with, having a group of medical professionals that I have at the ready to work with them. So even though I have a master's in positive psychology, I can do that as a coach, but if they need something further, then I've got people that actually can do that that are professionals because there always needs to be, well, I don't know that it always needs to be, but there often needs to be a separation between the coach and athlete and maybe the sports psychologist or the sports therapist. And the reason why is I, as the coach, as nice of a guy as I can be at times, I'm still the coach. So there's always going to be some tension or resistance because we're making these kids sometimes do things that are very challenging or very uncomfortable, or we're in the heat of battle and it's a competitive sport. So having someone who can have that conversation sometimes about me with them, I think that's important or their parents or someone else. Um, so having a team of people, like I talk about having a justice league of therapists, you know, so if a kid's got a muscle pull, I know where to send them. If a kid's dealing with a family crisis, I know where to send them. If a kid's dealing with a nutritional issue, I know where to send them. And thinking about how to be very intentional with your words how to phrase the sentences and things that you say to them so that it can be perceived and received more positively, having like um, different types of activities. So having a gratitude journal, having a 24 hour taper, doing a gratitude bomb, having a mantra, having the, you know, competitions with who can reframe the most challenging thing, the best, figuring out how to find humor in things, visualization, visualization walks. So there's all of these things that you can do, actual stuff that you can do for the particular problem that the athlete might be facing. Mm -hmm. And so that has been the biggest thing for me. I had no tools. I'm like, well, I want to build a house. Okay. Well, I have the will to do it, but I don't have a saw. I don't have a measuring tape. I don't have uh, you know, a bulldozer. I have none of these things. And after going and getting a master's degree, it wasn't like I just had the desire, the what. I now had the house, mm-hmm. how to do this, how to do that, how to set it up. And you know, more simply, it's made me think about how to talk to people, what my emails need to sound like, what my conversations need to sound like. Because there's a, another book out there called uh, Thinking Fast and Thinking Slow. Yeah, by Daniel and Kahneman. Thinking, 
Yeah, it's it's amazing. Very good. And, Very good. And, and and it's the idea of like our natural response is ah, you know, sometimes or angry or whatever. And so through this training that I've gone through, you know, there are times where it's like, I really do want to talk to you about this, but I don't know that I'm in a proper place to talk to you about this. So let me think about it. And I'm going to come back to you tomorrow with a much better plan. And I can workshop it with other people and I can be more positive and I can be more constructive. And that way I don't respond in a way that could be very detrimental or mm -hmm. undermine my relationship with the kid. And so these are all the types of things to think about. And it's wild because even once you have this education and you have these tools, sometimes kids don't want to do it. So the smaller things work better when you're looking at compliance. Mm -hmm. So it's like, hey, let's just write down three things you're happy about every day for a week. You know, and if you do that, I'll give you an interval card and you don't have to do an interval in practice at some point at the end of the year you don't want to do. And obviously people like intrinsic value um, and, and that type of stuff. But sometimes with younger people, you do need a little bit of a carrot to get them to buy in. Mm -hmm. And then the structure things for us, like if I have a kid that's hurt or injured, I will have an older alumni athlete send them a, a message or an email or, and then I'll hand it to the kids so that if there's some issues with like, Hey, why is this older kid reaching out to my kid? Usually when it's the same gender, it's not, it's not an issue, but they'll be like, Hey, I went through this and this is the situation I went through Banta. Trust me that he cares about you and he loves you. And I went through this and this is what I thought about, or I did to overcome it. And um, you know, so when you have those resources as well, there's so many things that you can do that I never even thought about doing to help these young people out. It was an absolute game changer. And as good as I was, uh, or I became at the X's and O's and training design and stuff like that, I don't emote the best look. People think I'm angry all the time when I'm at rest. So like my in-laws, we go to this uh, theme park called Silver Dollar City. And they think I'm mad because we go there three times a year, which is a whole different thing. But in reality, <laughs> it's just like, I'm just at rest. You know, I'm not mm. manic. The kids are playing. It's loud. You know, I'm, I, there's only so many conversations you can have, you know? And, and so I'm sitting there and I have to realize, Hey, like what I'm emoting doesn't match up to what I'm feeling or thinking. Mm -hmm. So thinking about how you come to someone and talk with them. And yeah, Brett's book with like, hey, you're dealing with a soldier or you're mm -hmm. dealing with these different types, not a soldier, like a real soldier, but a mentality person and really getting to think constructively about how you say things to people and how you motivate them is really important. And it's changed my default position when I come to a kid who makes a mistake. Mm -hmm. Like I used to be like, why are they doing this? Don't they know? They might not know. And a kid may be rude to you, not because they're a jerk, but they actually have like massive insecurities or instability in their life. And so this is a protection mechanism. Mm -hmm. So just constantly reinvesting yourself to be as kind as you can without undermining your authority. Mm -hmm. Things like that. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of rich information there. I really love the part where you were talking about, you know, separating the emotion from the actual delivery. And I think... Some some podcast that I was listening to re recently that touched on that beautifully was a, a marketing expert called Seth Godin, and he's really famous for a lot of his work. And he said, 
the desire to be authentic all the time, well, it isn't desirable because if we did that, then we would say what we think when we think it, and it wouldn't go down too well in a lot of our interactions. Instead, our best self exists on the separation between stimulus and response, which is something that you know many people are aware of. And I think with the popularization of such terminology like authentic, um, it's important that we recognize like what context we're talking about, right? And uh, you know, oftentimes, like because life is so hectic. And because you have so many things going on at once as a high school coach and you got your family, you got, you got, you know, you, you're a teacher too. And so like there's a, you walk out of the track and, and like the classes happen and God knows what it's just like time is a precious resource for kind of having a, a graceful approach to communication, especially with a population that is quite sensitive in nature and doesn't have, you know, the ability to think with perspective and go, oh, Ryan probably had something to deal with today, like an adult would or what have you. It's like you have to be using that interaction um, with the utmost intentionality. And I, I think the brilliant part about what you said as well is that we have to look at essentially approaching the kid with kindness, but then also making sure that the message is quite clear. And that's an art I'd imagine that you've had to develop over over a long period of time but when done well because I've seen it just coaches straight up saying what they think when they think it and hopefully that it's going to be perceived the way they want it um, in its best fashion or most productive constructive fashion but it's just not because the athlete is upset about their performance too and they don't want to talk right now or what have you like it's timing and, and everything else that goes into that is just so important and I think that's why I really wanted to spend a bit of this conversation for someone who is in that sphere and has the background um and and all the methods as well with the gratitude journals and and again even just the simple stuff with the compliance it's all really really great um but on the training front because i know a lot of people are listening they're thinking yeah communication great 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 (laughs) and i'm sure you were there yourself at one point um but now that you kind of have a firm grip on the two and you're and you're practicing constantly you know you've had three very influential practitioners contribute to the sprinters compendium is there anyone else that you would add that didn't contribute but is paying playing a key role in your philosophy as a coach right now you know Stu mcmillan did not contribute and it's not that i don't know it was very you know a lot of different things going on Stu and i are buddies now Mm -hmm. um and so his thoughtful approach about even thoughts is is really impressive and so i i enjoy that quite a bit um you know there's a young guy out there brendan thompson who Mm. um is on social media he's literally up the street he and i live a mile away from each other oh wow and we've become very very close and he's very very bright and in the field of you know field sports and soccer and things like that he's he's great in the idea of how to kind of take Tony's ideas, but then also practically put them out there for field sport. I think Brendan's done a a really good job. So like one of his key things that I love is if we're measuring, so we're timing and we're timing everything. That's great. But chasing PRs can be a nasty business because early on, there's a lot of low hanging fruit and we were going to PR a ton. You know, you just get off the couch and start doing something new 
you're going to be a lot better at it in a couple of weeks. And man, that is sexy and attractive and interesting. I mean, you look in America, we got a sport called pickleball. Why has pickleball become the big rage? Because it's not that hard to do and it's brand new. So anybody in their neighborhood has visions of being like a pickleball world champion, as opposed to a sport that is very well developed, that has a lot of athletes in it. And some of the highest end people have already been identified and it's very thorough. You know, it's like being the best downhill skier in Kansas, you know, which for those who don't know, Kansas is flat as a pancake, you know? So, but with Brendan, what I, what I love that he's done and he's like, okay, now once we get past the low hanging fruit, the novelty of new, what can we do to help keep the kids interested and excited about training? Mm-hmm. especially when he's dealing with a sports situation where what he's going to do isn't always going to be immeasurable in the competition itself. There's a lot of other things that go into a 2000 yard season for an American football running back. Right? So what he cre- he created, which I love is a rolling PR system. So instead of taking the one PR, that's this crazy outlier. It could have been beautiful and sunny, huge tailwind, You just got a date, you know, with the hottest girl in school, you (laughs) ate a great meal, you got to sleep in and you did okay on a test, huge PR, you know, then you run out, run something crazy in a flying 10 or a flying 30. And that's probably never, ever going to be repeated. So how do we show growth? It's about raising the floor, right? Is our rolling PR getting better all the time? Are our numbers that matter getting better all the time? And that made a huge impact on me since the book's been done about how important measurement is. But then with the positive psychology aspect, how do you leverage the positive psychology of that measurement as well? So Mm -hmm. that, yeah, it's great you PR'd. That's great. But it's a super windy day, super tailwind. Mm -hmm. It's going to be the best you've ever run. Mm -hmm. But- that's the one performance, but the next hundred are going to be better than the hundred before it. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. we're showing growth Yeah, that to me and what he's done there with that very, very cool. And something that I use in my training uh, now, especially with young high school athletes. Yeah. And it's fostering that perspective again, isn't it? Like by just talking about the elements involved, because you mentioned something very pertinent there. You can go out on a very sunny day, conditions um, all considered, and and knock it out of the park. And it goes the same for competitions too. I remember a few years ago, Nick Newman got a kind of jumps roundtable going on. And, you know, they were talking about their testing batteries, which was great and really informative and so cool to see a star-studded lineup. But one thing that Dan mentioned, going back to Dan Path again, is that you should have windy PRs you should have cold day PRs. You should have, I just broke up with my girlfriend PRs, like, or whatever it might be. <laughs> like, right. But it is, it's, I guess, especially when you dig into the sphere of psychology, and I have a sports psychologist myself. And when we have these conversations about, like, what the week looked like in the lead up to the competition, you realize that he's validating the fact that if something was really junked up life wise, or, or better yet, again, conditions were in your favor these things actually do matter and it's it's important to weigh in on them it's not to get less necessarily flustered one way or the other then so it's like 
if it's a rainy day and you jump something good or run something good, then that's a win. No, you know, it's, it's not to be compared to the, the ideal. Right. And, and so we've done that where ahead of time, it's like, listen, it's going to be muddy and rainy. And so times are not going to matter. It's going to be your battle with yourself and those around you, mm-hmm. you know, who's going to be the toughest. Let's, let's, let's break it down. Instead of worrying about running a, you know, a 5,000 meter cross country run, right. Let's worry about how are we going to attack the biggest hill? That's our first goal. You know, how are we going to run down the hills? What are we going to say to ourselves in the middle of the race? You know, at this particular spot, let's mm-hmm. break it down. So we're not eating a steak in one bite, you know, and this idea of like the weather and conditions plays a role, but also we want them to know, like, we're going to be the best prepared to handle it. That's mm-hmm. why we compete uh, outside in those conditions. Mm-hmm. That's why sometimes we warm up when it sucks and it's rainy out. That's mm-hmm. why we go outside. Even though it's cold, we will go out and train outside because, and I know that some of the, the Brits and the Irish probably won't like to hear this, but there's a lot of focus on indoor track in Europe. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, you look at the accomplishments in indoor track for Europeans, it doesn't always match up with outdoor track. And it's mm-hmm. this idea, like we're going to run the 60 and we're going to run the hundred and we're going to have, you know, these guys look like they're uh rugby uh, you know, interior rugby ruck guys running down the track in the hundred. And it's like, that's great, but you guys might actually be better at the 200 and the 400 and the 400 hurdles, but you don't train it because the weather in Ireland is not always great Mm -hmm. for the perfect conditions Mm -hmm. and it's never going to be perfect. In fact, Altus kind of ran into a bigger problem when they were out in Phoenix. It was nice all the time. Mm -hmm. And so the weather was almost too nice where you Mm -hmm. didn't have these natural breaks in training where it's like, well, we need to go inside or take a day or two off the track where they weren't planned, but they actually could have saved someone's season because you were putting way too many days together without those breaks. And so one of the things that Stu said that I've bought into since the book has come out, he's like, can you dial in all eights? Don't dial in all tens. Trying to dial in all tens are impossible. One day you might be at a 10 when it comes to your nutrition, but your sleep is at a two. Mm -hmm. Socially though, you're at a seven. And then training effort, you're at a nine. Mm-hmm. But when the averages get all played through and funneled through the system, let's be at eights. Mm-hmm. And that to me is like, yeah. So that way we always know it's never going to be exactly the way you want, but we're going to adapt to it. Mm-hmm. We're going to be as resilient as we can. And we're going to try to control as many things that we can control and then not worry about the things we can't. And what are the things we can tr- control? We can control effort. Mm-hmm. That's, almost the only thing you can control and then slightly you can control attitude you know but outside of that you know there's going to be some things you're going to have to adjust to on the fly and things that are going to be different and it's going to be okay and in those conditions things are going to look different now Mm -hmm. the key for me as a high school coach i do want the kids to peak at the end of the year i do want them to have those performances at that time and we're looking for it at that time but for somebody who's training all year round their competitive season is much larger you got to come at it a little differently from a structural point of view and from a mental perception point of view. That 
I guess, system that you're talking about with Stu is something that he mentioned on, and I'm going to give it a plug because everyone that listens to this podcast should listen to this podcast episode also. I think it was the athlete psychology he did with uh, Steve Magnus and Brad Stilberg. That's one of the yeah. best podcast episodes contextually from a psychology standpoint for track and field that I've ever listened to. It's brilliant. Um, and then you mentioned something there in, in terms of maybe not specifically referencing Stu, but you brought up something that I think he did write about. And I will tell you from moving back from Louisiana a year ago to Ireland. And I actually had this very thing happen almost a year ago. I trained in almost perfect conditions in Louisiana almost all the time. And I could pick my wind wherever way it went. Well, guess what? When I showed up to nationals on a very swirly day, <laughs> physical condition didn't matter because the skill that comes with being, as you mentioned, what you get your guys to do is adapt to multitude of conditions. And by exposing them during the warm up, there is a supreme power to knowing that you can handle all situations or make, I would say not handle, but make the best of and be unaffected by the day that gets presented to you. Because I know for a fact I was in great physical shape, but again, skill-wise adapting and having a technical model that's flexible to the constraints of the weather is something that I believe Stu touched on and probably something they suffered with in Altus. It's just, it's it's kind of something that's not very tangible per se. Like we can't really communicate what that exactly is or how it feels. But when an athlete who has been exposed to it rises up on a day that's less than ideal, you kind of see what they what they mean. Um, but on your kind of, let's say annual year, you've got like a, you know, clear picture of what your, your peak of the year looks like. Talk to me a little bit about like the general progression for your high school athletes and what you're working on in the beginning of the year and how that generally unfolds. Um, the systems that are most important that you believe for that age group, for those people, for those, let's say for sprinters more so than anything. All right, so if we're specifically talking about sprinters, you've got a key performance indicator workout on Monday. So depending on what type of sprinter you have, if you have a hamstring-centric, quad-centric sprinter, or if you have a short sprinter versus a long sprinter, that day is going to be typically geared towards that. And if you're going to pick the week one of the two-week microcycle, that workout is going to be what I think is best for that particular event. So if it's a short sprinter, that day is going to look a lot like a feed the cats day with a lot of acceleration, a lot of max velocity and a lot of recovery. If that sprinter is a 200, 400 meter person, it's going to be more speed reserve or what people like to call special endurance or speed endurance. I know those things are different, but again, it depends on what you're trying to do on that day. Those days are always going to be very fast for the distance. Mm -hmm. So while absolute speed, we're talking, you know, fly 30, for a 200, 400 meter person, a speed reserve, you're talking 150 as fast as you can with your hair on fire with recoveries that match the length of, or match the intensity that was just put out. Mm -hmm. And so I will go all the way up to 15 to 20 minutes recovery between a rep. Now that doesn't mean they're not doing anything. We could do some buildups in between um that are not exhaustive they're more like okay let's re-energize let's refire up the system and that's been proven through research for the quality of the next rep to be as close to sustained as the quality of the first rep you know and so we're trying to prime the athlete so on that monday it's always going to be one of those key performance indicator workouts now for me 
in my system as a high school coach, I don't want to just go down one road traveled where Tony might be max velocity, max velocity, max velocity. And then he has two track meets a week to fill in the gaps of what he calls his lactate days. I don't have two meets a week often. I have one and we have one for about, you know, I don't know, nine weeks, give or take, you know, and then the rest of my season is the buildup to the track mm-hmm. meets when we're allowed to finally have them. So what I do on Monday, I will do the opposite thing on the following Monday. So if I do a short acceleration max velocity day, which by the way, you keep hearing me say, I do both of those things together Okay, because yep. people that try to separate acceleration and max velocity are lying to themselves. You're still accelerating when you're building up into a fly 10, fly 20, fly 30. So why not let's work on that as well because those piece together quite nicely and acceleration can be done a lot more frequently because it doesn't expose the posterior to the stresses and loads that lead to hamstring issues, right? Because you're in a different angle of attack until you Mm -hmm. come up to upright running. Mm -hmm. So you can do acceleration all the time, but I'd rather do those together. The second Monday would then become, okay, if it's a 400 meter strength person, they might run two 350s and a couple 150s. They might run 150s, race modeling the 200 through the 150, you know, and breaking it down with huge recoveries. So each one of those Mondays, you know, for me, and I like to do what's called the over under, which you go a little bit longer than the race distance. And you go a little bit shorter than the race distance. And that is the crusp of my entire critical mass system. We want to go at the intensities they're going to be exposed to in competition and then go a little bit longer and a little bit shorter in the intervals in the practice itself to get that done. Mm -hmm. Then Tuesdays are typically a tempo day. Um, And again, what does tempo look like? Well, one Tuesday can be an extensive tempo and another Tuesday can be intensive. Mm -hmm. But I like to go really like I like to go 200s um, with very, very short recovery. And I know that's been poo-pooed. But for me, I like to build up that waste product. I like to reinforce good sprints mechanics, even on days where we're going at a slower pace. Because what people don't understand is because they get into this whole thing, like your mechanics break down, if you're not going all out, that's only true if you don't work on it and you let the person get sloppy and you let them break down and you aren't cueing them. So Mm -hmm. we cue that. And no matter how fast you're going, the backside of an athlete's mechanics looks, uh, good mechanics looks very similar. So if you look at the backside of a marathoner versus the backside of Usain Bolt in the 100 meter dash, if they are equally elite in their particular event backside is going to look a lot alike the only difference is the amplitude of the front side Mm. so we can still reinforce those things in my my tempo work i also like to build up you know the mental ability of being comfortable with being uncomfortable which those workouts provide it also builds up the body's ability to buffer that waste product but then eventually what it does is we start to simulate what the back end of a longer sprint might be. So in America, Mm -hmm. most high schoolers only run the 300 hurdles, but it simulates that fatigue and tiredness of the 300. It it, uh, simulates obviously the backside 200 of a 400, you know, and then also the 400 hurdles and then the 800 as well. Mm -hmm. And so I want to build in the ability for the athletes to hit those times. 
So when we move through the season, Tuesday ends up being back end 200 pace for a 400. And that's the time we want to hit. Then as we get real late in the season, I will remove the number of reps for a Tuesday. And then it becomes more of a speed reserve day or a speed endurance day. Now, why do I do that where we have two sessions back to back? Because kids have to run rounds in Missouri. We had a young lady in my high school who ran four races at the state championship and won all four races, but she had to run prelims in all four races. So over the course of a two-day weekend, she ran eight and she ran PRs in all four of the races, seven of the eight times and ran a state record twice. If an athlete isn't exposed to that type of progression for a Tuesday, they might not be able to handle it. Um, and now, if you're in a state meet or a championship situation where it's a one and done, you may not have to do that. I do. The second Tuesday, however, if I'm going over under, I might go more low and slow and I'll go shorter and then we'll run barefoot, you know, again. And then you might ask, why are we doing this? Well, one of the things that some sprinters run into is they run into body, um, body composition issues. So having that extra day of having some sort of work will help lean out an athlete who's been in Ireland lifting weights all winter long and as thick as a house, you know, and that's great for speed and power early in a block method. But when we're out of that block method, now we got to take all that big bulky muscle and we got to do something with it. And we're going to mm -hmm. go fast, but we also got to have some sort of fitness to support some of the other work that we're going to do. Mm -hmm. Wednesdays are always active recovery. Week one or week two doesn't matter. Always active recovery. We're going to do herd mobility. We're going to do Pilates. We're going to have a nice, good dynamic warm up. Um, and and by the way, I like to warm up six days out of the out of the week, even if we're not competing, even if we're not training, mm -hmm. because we just need to do some maintenance and fuel and lubricate the joints yep. and do a diagnostic test on the engine. Then the Thursday is an interesting day because whatever we did on Monday, we will traditionally also do the opposite. So if Monday is a speed power day or acceleration and, and speed day, then Thursday is going to be more of a longer rep day. Okay. If Monday is a long rep day of 350s or 200s or 450s or whatever, then Thursday becomes an acceleration and maximum velocity. So not only am I going over and under the distance, I'm over, I'm also going over under the themes of the days. Mm -hmm. So the athletes getting exposed to a speed day and a length day, and then another speed day and another length day. Mm -hmm. So over the course of two weeks, they're getting four sessions that look like that. In addition, if they have a competition on a Saturday or a mm -hmm. Friday, they're getting six days of something like that. We're in competition. You're blending both. My Fridays, if we compete on Saturdays, I call that a Pavlov day. So we're trying to stimulate the body, ring the bell, get the body to salivate, so to speak. Um, so that way they're not stagnant. On that day, we do a little bit of speed. We do some of the technical stuff to prime the athlete for competition, not to make it exhaustive. Mm -hmm. And then Saturday, we either compete or we have a race model day. And then mm -hmm. Sunday's completely off. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's how I handle my system. Um, and again, it's over the course of two weeks, which allows me the uh, time 
to get all of these workouts in. And people are always stuck on the seven days. Well, if you're stuck on seven days, you don't give the body enough room to do the other things. And what's cool is within that 14 day to 10 day cycle, you see those things enough and you see them in similar varieties that the body's still getting something out of it that you don't necessarily think. So let me give you an example. If I'm doing a speed reserve day, we're not jogging the first 40 meters. We're getting out in a three-point stance. We're getting out super hard. We're going through our drive phase progressions. We're running up. And then we break down the race in whatever race model we're trying to do, which means we're still accelerating. And it means there's a period of time in that 150 that we're going all out. We're just tacking on the specific race distance that we need in addition to that to formulate and fill what the athlete needs to make the thing the thing to mm-hmm. actually practice the thing they're going to mm-hmm. do. And so I'm much more comprehensive and global in my training. And I really do believe in this idea of the critical mass system, which means we are going to accelerate. We are going to do tempo, tempo. We are going to recover. We are going to do longer stuff at a very fast pace with huge recoveries so that the athlete can do a lot of stuff in a high school sports season for me and youth athletes should, because if we go down this narrow path, like I talked to Craig Pickering uh, a long time ago when he was still competing and I'm like, Craig, you know, he was going to be one of the first Caucasian guys to go under 10 seconds. And yeah. Which he would absolutely have done now with the super shoes. He'd have probably ran nine, nine, you know, easily. Okay. But anyway, I'm like, Hey dude, you need to run the 200. It's like, ah, you know, man, my, my, you know, if I run the 200, my back locks up. I'm like, yeah, cause you look like an NFL linebacker, mm-hmm. you know, that's partly part of the issue, you know, but, but the other thing I was trying to tell him, like, but what you don't understand is if you run an all out 200, the middle 100 of the 200 is the fastest a human can run. You're running the fastest hundred meter segment you can run in the middle of that 200. That is speed that the body can never see for that long outside of that. So like people forget that you're picking up different biomotor stimulus by some of the things that you're doing when you try to parcel it out and you're like, well, I'm going to just do this because this is the only thing I'm focusing on. It's like, yeah, but you could do these things Mm -hmm. and it will grab that too, Mm -hmm. but you're getting a little bit more done with it, you know? So that's kind of my philosophy in, in a nutshell. I know that's a lot to throw at the audience, but <laughs> you know, it's pretty easy to break it down into those two weeks and those progressions. Now, the other thing I would tell you is where do I start? I typically start at the beginning of what USATF says in terms of load for stuff. So like if they say you could start with 600 meters worth of acceleration work, well, then that's probably where I'm going to start. And then as the season goes along, I do typically increase the volume of training about 10% a week for three weeks. And then every four weeks, I have a recovery week. Mm -hmm. And then I climb up again for three weeks. And on that eighth week, we have a recovery week. Now, again, perfect system. That would be great, but it doesn't always work out with the timeliness of it. So there might be spring break or Christmas holiday or something in there, well, then, of course, we will time up our recovery week on one of those because you're not going to get the training done. The kids aren't going to be around and there's too much on their plate.
but that's what we'll do. And then about six weeks out from our championship phase, then I subtract about 10% all the way down. So, you know, if we're running tempo 200s, it goes from eight to six to five to four to three, mm-hmm. you know, over the course of those last couple of weeks, you know, we go from running, you know, maybe two, four fifties down to two, three hundreds, you know, and you just, you just keep chipping away, mm-hmm. but you're still kind of doing the thing throughout. We also lift. And when we lift weights um, in the winter, we lift four days a week. In the summer, we'll lift as many days as we train. In the tr- the cross country season and the track and field season, we lift twice a week, you know. Um, and when we when we lift, we lift on hard days. We don't lift on easy days because we want to make sure that the recovery days are actually the recovery days. And then when we lift, we always lead with an Olympic lift, and then we follow up with all the big banger movements after that: deadlift, squat, and then yes, we do bench. Even my cross country kids bench. You know, because I feel like there's a hormonal output and a skeletal support thing that's going on there as well. Um, and so, again, when the seasons start, my distance kids and cross country and my track kids and track and field, they look a little bigger. And then as the season goes along, naturally, their bodies will change because that stimulus is no longer emphasized in that block. Hmm. When you're preparing for a meet week, would you tend to go with, say, the more taxing of the sessions, those that you rotate between on the early part of the week so that they get some compensation for the, the meet later on? Yeah, so so in Missouri, we have Sundays off always. We never mm-hmm. compete or practice on Sundays ever. And so for me, in the way that I, I know some college coaches don't do this, mm-hmm. um, but I will have my hardest quote unquote hardest or most challenging workout on Monday mm-hmm. to provide the most amount of recovery till we get to the next Saturday. And you're like, but Banta, you're doing all these other workouts. Yeah, I am. But you have to understand that there's this ebbs and flows and things in the body that we have set up where the volume typically, as we move through the back of the week, will get much, 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 much smaller mm-hmm. um, to allow for that. In a perfect world, I'd rather have the the acceleration and max velocity day on Thursday because it allows for, you know, the recovery of some of the other just volume-based stuff that we wouldn't do on that day. And it also um, allows for the central nervous system to fully recover so you get that bump on a Saturday, Yeah, you know. Uh, but I like, you know, Sundays are a complete day of rest. Wednesday, we have school. We have practice. I can't. You know, I know that like Tony Holler, who you've spoken to, he'll have like a just a complete day off. The sprinters go home. Culturally, I can't do that at my school. You know, that would not be good with my team. You know, like they they would not like that. And then kids that weren't sprinters probably wouldn't show up on Wednesday either. Uh, Besides the culture thing, though, I want to see what the workout, you know, from the two days before has wrought. Are they sore? Are they looking tired? Are they fatigued? I want to check in. I don't want to wait till Thursday when we're going to go fast again to not know of the problem that we may be able to take care of in the trainer's room, right? With the physical therapist, or I can take care of and catch ahead of time. That's just too much time away from them without diagnostically knowing physically where they're at. I just don't feel comfortable. I think something that might add a bit more substance to what you're saying, and it's a, it's a random question, but I think it will help is, have you ever thought about how you would work differently if you were coaching an elite hundred meter sprinter? Because yeah, you've worked in the high school system for a while, but 
as you said, you've had conversations the likes of Craig Pickering. You've clearly observed a lot of the trends that go on in Europe, and I'm sure you have in the US as well. Like, it, I think it gives a good, again, bit of substance to why the high school athlete may get away with certain things and then why the elite athlete wouldn't. And I think it informs the whole coaching process for anyone who's listening to this. Do you have any ideas yeah. on how you would do things differently if it's, you know, no rules really as such, but, uh, you know, there's there's key things that you would be touching on or, or things that you wouldn't necessarily do with an elite that you you currently do with a well-trained or sorry yeah with a with a high school athlete with a well-trained elite yeah so it's interesting because like first and foremost i think we need to address the elephant in the room that i think a lot of times professional coaches and professional athletes probably aren't actually getting coached the best has nothing to do with the coach it has to do with the relationship with the coach and the athlete Mm. you've got somebody like andre de grasse or justin gatlin or Usain Bolt or somebody like that. And especially in a country where there's a lot of opinions and there's a lot of so-called experts like in the United States or in the European Union or Europe in general, you've got a lot of interference. You got a lot of vultures. You got a lot of people that will be like, well, I'll do this. It's like, well, you know, like there used to be a Saturday Night Live skit where they're like, oh, I've got this new thing. It's called 10 minute abs. You know, it'll make your core the best. They're like, what if somebody comes up with five minute abs? Oh no, somebody came up with 30 second abs. And it's like this race to the bottom of like, how can I keep this athlete happy and that they're this freak and they're already this fully formed person. So the last thing I want to do is piss them off or hurt them, right? And so that's true, you know, and that's a concern and that's a reality with a professional athlete. I think one of the things it really depends is how fit is that person? And I'm not talking how, what their mile looks like or anything silly like that, but like, what does their body composition look like? How are they able to handle the workouts they do get done? What do those look like? Do we have a deficit there? Is there a problem? You know, and I've had the, the blessing of coaching some super elite high school athletes, Emily Sisson, is the fastest marathoner in United States history. She was my high school athlete, you know, and when I coached her, she was with a different program for a while, a different school. She came to us in our system and uh, she was already, you know, world-class youth athlete. And then she PR'd in the 800, the mile and the 3,200. And so I feel like there's probably a lot of elite coaches that could do a lot for their sprinters, but are handcuffed because the sprinter and the athlete themselves controls a lot of what they're going to do and what they're not going to do. And so me being a coach of an athlete like that right now, uh, Sky Lee is, you know, one of the fastest women in the United States at her level in the hundred hurdles. She ran 1336 for a junior in high school. She's not even 17 years old yet. Um, She's probably going to break the national record. Is she more challenging to coach than an athlete who's slow and will never make a state championship. Yes, because there's a lot more on the line. The details matter. Less is always going to be more because you don't want to injure the kid, you know, and the kid's so talented that sometimes that extra rep or that extra workout in the championship season, not going to matter, you know? And so if I was going to coach a professional group, certainly there would be a lot more recovery built into our thing because we're not going to be competing in the manner that a high school athlete does. They're not going to run four different events. They might only run one event. 
Well, that of course is then going to inform my training. I have to get them ready for what the competition is going to look like. And thus that would dictate my volumes, uh, my density and my number of days of recovery. I don't think it would change my preseason that much. In fact, the preseason is going to be a lot longer, right? Your pre-competition phase Mm -hmm. is going to be a lot bigger. So you can do some more of that traditional stuff that I had just been talking about with my training. But then when you get into the competitive season, then it's going to have to look like Dan Path, where you're going two, one, 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 you know, or you might have two days together, one day off, one day on, one day off, one day on. Or you could do what Usain Bolt's crew would do is they would have like a speed week, a power week, an endurance week, and a recovery week. And so that actually looks like my three weeks up and my one week down. But instead of it being based on volume, it's based on emphasis of work, you know? And so your ebbs and flows are happening over and over and over again. And then once you get out of the competitive cycle, then it can go back to more traditional training again in the summer. I don't think that, see, and what I think a lot of pros get wrong is they'll go out and have their guys run like, you know, crazy, crazy long reps and crazy, and what I mean by crazy, I'm talking thousands. And it's like, this kid, this kid runs a hundred. What are you doing? You know, like you don't have to do that. And so the problem is we get out on the extremes with these things and it's gets to be unsensible. And um, so I've thought, as you can tell, I have thought a lot about this and how I would handle it. And currently I have an athlete in the high school level, which is that type of kid. And so you have to be very, very careful um, because they're already And the thing. Why is she so good? Partly why she's so good is she's been running since she was like nine years old. Mm-hmm. So her training age is a lot different. Mm-hmm. It is more like a pro because they've already been doing it for a while. So you have to be very careful with that. And the other thing is, is like, if I was coaching a pro, and I know Stu's talked about this too, but they're much more a part of that conversation. Like what they want, you know, but the problem is what they want is going to be a moving target. It's going to be on the whims of the day. Us as a coach, Mm. we have to see the long-term situation. Hey, I know you want this and we've done this, But understand there are repercussions for this choice. It could be an improvement here and a degradation of something over here. Yeah. So we have to be very careful with what we're doing. Yeah. That's really good. I think, I think for sure being an athlete and then also assuming the role of a coach at times, like your emotional investment can definitely play. it, It can turn on the blind spot, so to speak. And the ego obviously is playing a role there. Whereas of course the coach being someone who isn't as emotionally invested in some shape or form, I wouldn't say, yeah, I think that's safe to say, but I'll, I'll put an asterisk beside it because obviously coaches are very committed to the process. Um, but being able to zoom out and knowing the sensible option and knowing the factors at play in terms of how cause and effect will work uh, is because the plan is, is, assembled intentionally it's not for a reason to be just throwing stuff in randomly and then yeah you might get one result today but again it infects the the championship preparation so to speak or that's just an example um but you bring up the topic there in in my mind at least as you're mentioning some of those things of training age and 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 the i suppose ingredients that can help an athlete go very far into their collegiate and maybe even pro career. And I'm sure you've seen graduates of yours 
go on to have very successful pro careers um, and, and collegiate careers. Are there any common denominators that you think stand out among those athletes? And it could be psychologically, of course, but I'm sure there are ingredients that you feel are essential in those developmental years that just will allow them to kind of flourish long-term, technical, physiological, and otherwise. I think that number one is how do they handle their business and competition? Everybody that I've had that has gone on to be collegially successful, they know that competition is a business trip. It is not a sex, uh, social exposition. And so like where the athlete I have currently, Sky, um, what a great name, by the way, Sky, mm-hmm. right? And she's a hurdler. I mean, sometimes, you know, God just puts it all together perfectly, you know? And, and but when you, you know, she's social, she's got friends, she can be silly, you know, she can do all this. But when it comes time for competition, I mean, you know, in practice, she handles her business too, but. But in competition, it's like, where's Sky at? Oh, she's over there doing her hurdle drills. Oh, she's over there warming up, right? Emily Sisson, never had to ask that. Emily Sisson, when we would, um, so she was never a high mileage athlete, um, but she was a high activity athlete. And so people are like, I don't get the difference. The difference is she wouldn't be on the ground running all the time, but she'd have two a days. One would be a traditional running-based workout. Two would be swimming, biking, cross-training, elliptical. And the way that she'd crush it, I mean, there'd be pools of sweat. Like taking care of those things and taking care of those things and being very serious about it always has success at the high level. And a lot of people, like in America, we've got this thing called the kid works really hard. They call him a try hard. And it's like a like a negative connotation to a kid. It's like, well, I'm cool. I'm so cool. I don't have to try hard. And I refuse to try hard. Well, good for you, because now I know you're never going to be great. So even the most talented people are still putting in a ton of work, whether they've put in a ton of work cumulatively over the life of their career, or they're compacting it in to this time that they've just shown up onto my track and field program. They take care of those things. They're around in the off season. They don't get too far away from training. They don't disappear for long periods of time. However, the other thing that they're pretty darn good at is they're pretty darn good at focusing in on this moment in time. So like Brooks Johnson talked about, like pretty much all elite hundred meter people are crazy and it requires a level of focus that's kind of abnormal. And for some people might even be off putting. You know, and some people might even say, oh, it's selfish or it's this or that. It's like, yeah, but it requires that. It requires you being almost a little bit too obsessed with something to get to be really successful at something. And I've found that most of those kids have been able to do it. And I've been blessed. I've I've coached now it's it's about a hundred and ten athletes. In my time, we've gone to Division One schools um, for track and field or football, which I also coached um, for a period of time. And they've all had that. You know, I had the, they all have that level of focus. They all have that ability to handle the things that they need to handle and to focus on that moment to keep the social after and during it's a business, even with each other, even with their teammates. They don't, it, they didn't get along really well. 
And so that's an interesting thing that you have to manage too. So like when I had Emily, uh, I also had an, another young lady named Diane Robison, who was an All-American at Arkansas Division One as well and ran professionally for a brief period of time. They were on the same high school track and field team. And then two years ago, I had two young ladies that were Division One, and both were Division One All-Conference as a freshman that were competing in a lot of the same sprints in the in the 200 on a regular basis and they did not want to lose to each other they wanted to beat each other and so as a coach one of the things i would say that i've seen successfully are people that can manage that competitive intensity and then still be friends outside of it but also understand as coaches when we see it that's not abnormal that's very normal and it's not going to be all kumbaya so you got to figure out how do you handle having two bulls in one pen you know having the two studs in the same vicinity of each other um but the way that they go about handling the competition and the professionalism of the competition and not fooling around has always been the people who have had the most collegiate success mm -hmm. the other thing i would tell you is as a coach what i felt like i have done is and people don't necessarily think this about me if they see from the outside is i leave things on the table for the athletes i don't let them run an extraordinary amount of mileage i don't let them run an extraordinary amount of meters i now in more recent time have tried to cut back on the number of pre-championship competition races i have them do so like if i have a girl like sky lee in my program she didn't run a lot of races throughout the year and she only ran more than one race once um, in the middle of the year for one of our home invitationals that we had. That's the biggest invitational outside of the championship season. She did that one time because I knew that when we got to the championship season. She's going to have to race a bunch of races. Now people will tell you, but Banta, then you're not getting her prepared for the competition. You said you were doing that. Well, if you rewind this podcast, you'll know that I've done it in practice. We've practiced it so that when it comes time for competition, we can do it. I don't need to compete like that if I've practiced to, to compete like that. It'll happen when it needs to happen if you've done the right you know, uh, balance and uh, formula of dis, you know, density, intensity, and recovery and all that stuff. So, yeah. You've talked about how you foster that in a numerous ways, like the timing and everything. So you're hitting intensities through not only the how you plan the workout, but actually just some of the the tools utilized uh, to make the qu practices quality um, as, as as high quality as possible. Um, and, I and I loved a few different aspects about the athletes' characteristics there. And one in which was the ability to kind of attach themselves to the task, but then detach socially afterwards. Um, and the aspect of being able to recover well um, is, is part of social activity, but being fully locked in in the competition is obviously um, a big part of getting the job done. And I think another aspect that probably came to mind as you were talking about that is just that they themselves are going to take ownership for all the details that, you know, goes into summer workouts. Are they developing the whole system? Whole system meaning they're not neglecting certain components and they're not feeding the ones that are just purely down for their, let's say, ego and so forth. So that eventually you get a very well-rounded athlete that's sustainably heading into a long career um, versus, you know, 
when you get a very uneven distribution a sporadic kind of development um it's not just the interest that that says about them but it's also like the actual physical development is not as as maybe maybe as complete as could be um something we haven't really touched on you know you're obviously a, a dual kind of uh, employee of your school because you're a history teacher as well right Ryan correct I am. I am so I'm interested to know about the fact that that obviously complements your coaching I would say in some way and I'm sure that because you're a very introspective type person you've thought about how that does and then on the kind of in contrast to that how the coaching complements your teaching do you have any um, insights on that yeah I mean First and foremost, one of the things that I've learned as a teacher that really has helped out my coaching is that siblings are not the same, even though they come from the same parents. So to expect that another athlete that comes through your program is going to be the clone of the other kid is completely just nonsensical. Um, we've talked a lot about Emily Sisson, mm -hmm. but Emily also had uh, three other sisters who all were division one track and field athletes, but one of them was a jumper. One of them was a long sprinter, and the youngest one was a lot like Emily, um, a, a very much a distance-focused person. One person might be great at the jumps. The other person might be great at the hurdles. The other and, the and the other thing you have to remember is the kids want to differentiate themselves from their siblings. So don't ever, ever, ever in the classroom or as a coach compare the two, you know, because, again, I, I, you know, the quotes used a lot, but comparison's the thief of joy. There's something to be said for that. Now, if they turn out to be pretty much the same, okay, that's fine. But one of the things I do to figure out who they are is testing is really going to matter. So how do I do that in my classroom? Well, I believe in multiple intelligences. So I believe in, you know, the kids should do some acting. The kids should do some drawing. The kids should do some writing. The kids should do some presentations, verbal. And, you know, the kids should take some traditional tests. How do I do that as a coach? We're going to find out if the kids can hurdle. We're going to find out if the kid can jump. We're going to find out if the kid can throw. We're going to find out if the kid has endurance or resilience. And we're going to test for those things. And I'm going to rotate the different tests by having my kids do more than one event. So Sky Lee ran on relays this year. She also ran in flat sprints. She also ran in hurdles. She's also ran on the four by four, the four by one, the four by two. My distance kids, Emily ran on the four by eight, which we have in high school track and field. And I wish we had in the world championships, the Olympics, it's the best relay ever. Um, you know, she ran on, you know, her 32, she ran the 5k, she ran the mile, she ran eight. Did they run them all at the same time? No. You know, do a lot of my distance girls run the four by four? Yes. Do all of my sprinters run the four by four? Yes. You know, but I like to train my kids in the classroom through multiple intelligences, even if they're not good at it. Why? Because they might be, and they've never done it. And now they know they can do it. Like one of the first projects I give my kids is to write a eulogy to sad music about a historical person or to make a rap song about it, you know, and you'd be amazed at how many kids have lyrical skills that you never had an idea about or how many kids were incredible artists when they can create their own political cartoon. And so they're still learning my subject, but through a different expression as a track and field coach, they're still experiencing track and field, but they may think, Oh, I'm going to be a sprinter. You might, 
but you also can throw the crap out of the discus. Maybe that's what you should do. And now we know you can because I've put it in your hand to throw it, even if you didn't look, quote unquote, the part. Mm -hmm. And so that's informed me. In sport, a lot of people think that if you're of a certain color or ethnicity, you're uh, pigeonholed into a particular event. It's just not true. You know, I had a young lady from the inner city uh, that went to our high school. We have an interesting thing in St. Louis. We have kids that are bussed out from the city of St. Louis that come to the more, you know, um, affluent suburban schools. Mm -hmm. And she ended up being all state and cross country. She was the first girl since 1984 to be all state and cross country as an African-American female from the city of St. Louis. Now, you and I both know there were probably hundreds of young ladies before 1984 and after 1984 to the time that Lizzie showed up in my program that could have been all state. But they were just told, nah, this is not for you. But you were told that because you were never tested to see if it was for you. And you did have the ability. Well, Lizzie also happened to have a 36 on her ACT, a perfect score on her ACT, you know, and now she's in freaking law school at Washington University. This kid is a special young lady, but there's lots of special young ladies. Our best long jumper is a skinny little girl that looked like she's never seen the sunlight ever, you know, and I know in Ireland, you got some people that look like they've never seen the sun. Okay. Myself. Yeah, man. I wasn't going to say it. <laughs> no, I'm joking. I'm doing but, all right. But but the point is, is that, you know, you, you, you want to make the test the decider, not your biases, not your things. And you want to test a variety of things and train a variety of things. Because if you don't, you could be putting a roadblock up to their academic or athletic career that is unnecessary and that might have been the road or the path that they should have chosen. And so in the classroom, that's helped. The other thing I would tell you, and this is a problem and, and your listeners are like, yeah, I get this. This guy knows himself a little bit. I talk forever and I talk for a long period of time. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that I've realized as a teacher where I have to, because I'm a history teacher, I have to lecture, is that as a coach, a lot of times less is more. And then in the classroom, that can be good as well. I don't need to be on the stage all the time. It is important for my, my students to learn self-directed or in partners or in small groups. Just like as a coach, I don't need to be up here and lecture for an hour and a half every day. Maybe once a week, I have a long conversation with my athletes and they know that they have to pay attention on that day. And on the other days, let's get to work. Let's do the activity. Let's do the work. Let's do the stuff. Less, less explanation is sometimes more. And that's something that I have to constantly remind myself of because I tend, obviously, as the audience can tell, go the other way. Hmm. Well, most people who are listening to this enjoy that, to be fair. I think people who are podcast listeners are generally drawn to long, long forum and appreciate people who are willing to go beyond the black and white and go into the gray and everything that is to be respected about making these decisions and adapting accordingly to different people that you are clearly um, exposed to over the years as being both a coach and teacher. And then, you know, to capitalize a little bit more on, you know, your introspective side, and we, we kind of finish with this, I think is like, 
since you know let's say the release of the sprinters compendium like what part of you as a coach has improved the most well obviously the communication aspect with kids and meeting them where they're at has definitely got a lot better um my ability and and tony has drawn me this way i would say i very much um less volume based than i used to be Mm -hmm. you know i don't i know i don't need to do an exorbitant amount of work to get the task done that the kids don't need to race as many races throughout the regular season to still be prepared for the work itself um also that there are truly different athletes that I need to be paying attention to. Um, after researching the book, you know, I do see the difference between a quad centric and a hamstring centric sprinter, which could be a conversation of itself. Um, I do understand better that athletes have different motivations for being with us. Um, but also that some of the motivation needs to be fun and there needs to be something else in addition to the training that attracts them to the program. And yeah, okay, it's a family, but what if they're not a family? How can you create a structure with big sisters and little sisters or big brothers in the program? How can you create a connection from the past to the present to get kids more interested in your program, um, even though it seems like these people are in impossibly superior to them when they look at the record board and for them to realize that they were along that path too. They didn't all start out there. Um, and then most importantly, just like how do I, you know, structure some of my workouts differently for these kids if they're not that type of athlete that I would love to be a workhorse? What if they are a cat? How do I handle that? You know, and so those things have been massively important. And then the other thing is, is to realize that these people are kids and that ultimately their experience is their experience that you are just there as a guide at the intersection of a point in their life to help them build themselves and develop themselves into the adults that you hope prepare other people to make great decisions for this planet it's no longer about and it was it was all about me wanting to prove that i knew the right things and and to scratch an itch that I had where I felt like I didn't accomplish what I wanted to accomplish as an athlete. Well, I'm very much past that. You know, now it's more of, I want these kids to break records if they're meant to break records, but I also want these kids to have a great experience and to meet people that eventually will stand up in their weddings and for them to have lifelong positive memories and a skill set that they can apply to life that will make them better at handling real hard things that they're going to face that are way outside of the sheltered life of a secondary school experience. Mm, amen to that. Yeah, there's, and, that, and that's totally true. I, I, I often have had people say to me that just don't, you know, participate in high performance sport, say, why do I handle the things this way when they get to know me a little bit more? And I'm like, I owe that all to sport, oh, all the resilience, oh, all the, you know, perspective, I owe the, you know, I guess work ethic, if you will, or passion or the even ability to talk on a podcast. Like it's because I like these subject matters and I got into the rabbit hole of them and I had great people influencing them. So I think it is definitely no, I guess, um, 
overestimation to say that that's actually the power a coach has. And that's where the things in that specific setting can transcend into other people's activities later down the line. Because, you know, I remember even just the fact that I'm influenced by sports psychology now that only came through starting off as a long jumper. That didn't come because I woke up and decided I, I liked psychology. You couldn't get me to touch a textbook on psychology when I was in secondary school, you know? And so it, it, it is interesting how things can blossom under the right guidance. Um, Ryan, you're obviously, you know, we've talked about your resources. We've talked about your contributions uh, throughout the podcast, but for a, a hotspot of sorts to find you and to keep up with your work, where can we guide the listeners to get them the access that they need to get your articles and so forth? Yeah, so the easiest way, I'm, I'm most frequently on Twitter, as long as it's in existence. Um, you know, I haven't jumped over to threads or anything like that yet, but um, Twitter's probably the best one because I've got a, a, a link in there or a, a link with all of my resources. Um, I'm easy to find there. Um, it's where I spend most of my social media time, and it's the quickest way for you to get a hold of me. And that's uh, Sprinters Compend. Uh, and that's, and or you can just, type in Ryan J Banta and, and I will come up. Um, there are quite a few other Ryan Bantas out there, which is surprising, but uh, I usually am the first one to pop up with that. And then that, I, like I said, I have a link there to my book, which is on Amazon, my coach tube page, my YouTube page and season one of, of my podcast. So hopefully at some point I can return the favor and have you on my uh, second season at some point and I get to sit and listen and ask you a bunch of questions, <laughs> which would be fantastic as well. Oh, I'll have to give you a good reason to do that yet. But anyway, it is definitely worthwhile to get on over to Ryan's podcast as well, because he's had a bunch of great guests on as well as hopefully the uh, yet to be, I guess, distributed version, the international version of the Sprinters Compendium, which I think I myself will be in a copy because I'll no longer be um, thrown off by the by the international shipping and so forth. But folks, I know that you enjoyed this. I don't even need to to tell you or or let's say assume your answer. So thank you for your listenership as always. And thank you, Ryan, for, for joining me for the last hour and a half. It's been a really uh, great experience. My pleasure. Absolutely. Thank you, guys. And don't be strangers. If you got questions, reach out. That's why I'm here. Awesome. Guys, best of luck with the track and field season. I know you're in the heat of it at the moment, If you're, especially if you're overseas or you're where I am. Um, and yeah, until next time, take care. Thanks again for taking the time to listen to another episode of the Track and Field Performance Podcast. If you enjoyed it and you'd like to support the show, you can head on over to a podcasting platform of your choosing and leave a review, or you can share it online on social media so that your network of practicing professionals can benefit from listening to the great guests that we get on this show.